Well, um, we're going to turn our attention to God's word now. Um, and the scripture reading uh, for today is actually Psalm 19. Uh, GVC folks, you should be somewhat familiar with this because uh, Mark preached on it uh, just this past summer. Uh, and many Christians are very familiar with this passage because it is a beloved uh, psalm to many people, very, very well known. And if you could turn to it right now in a Bible or an app, um, I would appreciate that because we are really going to uh, dissect the text together uh, this morning. So, Psalm 19, beginning at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out to all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, see, we're getting better. Um, I, I just want to mention this before I start to people, uh, especially who, who might be virtual guests of Grace Valley Church. Um, it is a, a typically, uh, in, a, in a typical worship service, uh, we, uh, we provide an opportunity after the message for people to ask questions, typically for clarification or follow up on, on some of the things that are said in the message. And obviously we can't do that uh, in the moment right now, but uh, I do want to uh, let the congregation know that um, they can still text in questions. I'm happy to, to deal with those questions throughout the week. And if you are a guest uh, uh, from anywhere in the world and you want to ask a question, that is totally fine as well. My number is 905-517-0936. I'm probably going to get a whole lot of like prank calls and sales calls and, and scammer calls now, but I sacrifice, I sacrifice in order to be able to answer any questions that you might have. So I just wanted to, to throw that out there uh, for you. Uh, we are back in the Psalms. 
uh, obviously, but uh, back, more importantly, back in our series on worship. It's kind of ironic that here we are um, doing a series on, uh, on worship when we can't be together to worship, but that's just how it is. Maybe this is a, a good season for us to really reflect on the importance of worshiping together uh, while we can't do that uh, in person. And we've made our way through the call to worship so far, God calling us, uh, and the time of confession where God cleanses us. And now we're going to move to uh, the part of the service where we hear from God in his word. God speaks is the way we put it in our liturgy. And we're going to talk about why we do this. Why do we have sermons? What's the importance of sermons? If, you, if you've been going to our church for a while, you know that uh, the preaching of the word, the time for the message or the sermon is the center of the service for us. Uh, it's kind of the focal point. It, it, we dedicate more time to that part of the service than we do to any other part of the service, maybe sometimes too much time, I'm willing to admit, uh, to that part of the service. But the question is, why is it so central? Why is it so important that we sit under the preaching of the word, that we listen to God speak to us in the message? And the answer, this is a simplistic answer, I admit, but the answer comes to us right from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what he means by that is this, without God's word, you die spiritually. Now, listen to me, please. Um, we're not even in the sermon yet, but we've already got an application that's really important to hear, and it's this. If you are not reading scripture, if you are not listening to scripture, if you're not hearing the message proclaimed on Sundays uh, in some way, shape, or form, you are spiritually starving yourself. Some of you may be asking yourself, why am I so spiritually anemic? I feel weak. I feel lethargic. I feel like I don't have much of a, of, a, of a relationship with God at all. And the answer is right here. You're not listening to the word. You're not reading the word. The word is food for the soul the same way bread is food for the body. And if you are not putting food into your body, of course you start to feel weak. Of course you start to feel lethargic. And the same is true spiritually. Now you might say, okay, I understand that I should read scripture. I get that. I should read the Bible, but why, why do I have to listen to sermons? Why do I have to listen to a guy like you speaking at me for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, oh, heaven forbid, even more? Why do I have to do that? And the answer is actually summed up very well by a, a, a confession, an old reformed confession called the Second Helvetic Confession. And that confession says this. It says that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And what it means by that is, is that when a preacher opens scripture and reads a passage and faithfully, of course it's important that it's faithfully, faithfully explains the meaning of that passage and how it applies to your life, when they do that, it has the same effect on you as reading God's word directly. It has the same impression upon you. It does the same thing to you. In fact, um, a, a, 
you could almost say that, that a, the preacher, when he's doing that, he is the mouthpiece of God. Brian Chapel, who has uh, uh, a theologian, has written on preaching and, and thought about it a lot. He says that when a preacher preaches, they're not just speaking about Jesus, but rather they're speaking as Jesus to Jesus's people or God's people. That's pretty intense. As you listen to a preacher who is faithfully preaching the word, and that's also why preachers often with great fear and trembling, understandably, come up to the pulpit or to the podium or to the music stand to begin to preach, they, they, they tremble at the thought because they are called to speak on behalf of God. And the effect of that is the same as, whether you, as if you were listening to the word as it's being read. Now the question is, what's the effect? What does the word do to us? Well, that's what we're going to see in Psalm 19. We're going to look at it for the answer. Now, where are we here? Now, remember I said that Mark uh, preached just this past summer on this psalm, and one of the things he pointed out for us was that this is kind of a peerless psalm in terms of um, uh, describing the two books or the two revelations of God. There are two ways that God basically shows himself to us and explains who he is to us. One is through nature, and that's described in verses 1 through 6 of this passage. And then the other way is through scripture itself. And of course, the first five, uh, six verses of this passage are, are a beautiful poetic description of that first book, the book of nature. I'd love to talk about it, but we're going to focus actually all our time pretty much on the second book, which begins in verse 7, and that's the description of God's word. And, it, and you'll notice that it, it uses words like uh, law, statutes, precepts, um, uh, commands, ordinances. All these words are used basically to describe comprehensively, not just the Ten Commandments or the Pentateuch, but the whole word of God. So it's, it's all of God's word. And the word of God, Psalm 19 says, has an effect on us. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Now, refreshing is the word that the NIV uses right now. Uh, other translations have used the word revive the soul. Uh, it's the same word that's used in Psalm 23, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So the idea is reviving, restoring, refreshing. And it says that the law of the Lord is perfect, meaning the law of the Lord is impeccable. It is complete. Remember, David is contrasting scripture with nature. And in verses 1 to 6, he's saying, look, in nature, you see God's power, you see his majesty, you see his glory, you see his creativity. But in fact, that's actually incomplete. Because even though you can just learn all these things about God from that, you can't learn that God is loving, that God is merciful, that God is gentle, that God is patient. You can't learn from that the will of God. What does God want from me? What does he want 
from his people? How does he want us to live? You can't learn those things from nature. It's, it's incomplete. And, and it's not only incomplete, but it can be misunderstood. Because it's nonverbal communication. You can easily misinterpret it. Um, let me give you an illustration to, to explain what I mean. Here's your typical high school student. Or, okay, I don't know what a typical high school classroom looks like anymore, but when I was in high school, you had all these kids in class, and there's a boy sitting at a desk, and there's a girl across the room sitting at a desk. And the boy is looking at the girl, and he's kind of like really looking at her. And you know how you can sort of feel when someone is looking at you? You just get that vibe. So the girl, she looks up, and she looks over, and she sees the guy looking at him, and he freezes and he kind of smiles at her and then she gets flustered and she looks back and she sort of smiles and then she blushes and then she turns away. So what you've had is some kind of communication between this boy and this girl. But you're not sure what kind of communication it is. The, the boy might have been thinking terrible thoughts about her. Or he might have been thinking, I really like this girl and she's super pretty and, and I'd love to be able to talk to her. And she looks at him and she sees him and she kind of nervously smiles back and then she turns away and the boy is thinking, oh, maybe she likes me too. But it could be that she's thinking, oh no, that guy is looking at me and he's creepy and I don't know what to do. So she just kind of smiles and turns away. Do you see? The communication could be easily misinterpreted. But if the guy wrote a note and said, hey, uh, my name's so-and-so and I think you're kind of cool. I guess you wouldn't write notes. What do you do now? Text, Snapchat, whatever. But you get what I'm saying. You could clarify, you could bring clarity and bring completeness to the communication. Well, this is what the Bible does. The Bible completes God's communication to us and in doing that, the effect of that is this. It revives us, it restores us, it refreshes us. Now, the implication is, is that there's something wrong with it. Now, am I going too fast? Yeah. The soul, it says it restores my soul. What is the soul? Well, that's a reference to the inner self, right? Our inner being, our core identity. And what David is saying in Psalm 19 here is he's saying that, that there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with our core identity. There's something wrong with our inner being. It needs to be restored. It needs to be revived. It needs to be refreshed. You know, if you restore a piece of furniture, what are you doing? You're fixing it, right? You're improving it. You're making it new again. Because over years of use and abuse, it's been worn down, it's been beaten down, and so you are restoring it. And the word of God, David says, restores our inner being in the same way. Look, it is a distressing time right now. Like there's people freaking out over all kinds of things and understandably so because we've never been through something like this. There doesn't seem to be a, a, an end in sight and all kinds of the things that we used to think were certain and sure now are no longer certain and sure because and so we don't really know uh, where to put our trust or where to plant our feet and find like our sure footing. And so there's tremendous fear. You're beat up by that. You get beaten down by that. You get beat up by your own sin. The things that you do and say and, 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 and feel, the relationships that you damage by your, your actions, you get beat up by the sins that are done against you. 
Now, you can take a hike into, well, I guess you can't right now. <laughs> but let's say you took a hike on the Bruce Trail or something, and, and you felt the breeze, and you, the leaves were rush, rustling in the wind, and the sun was coming through, and it was dappled, and it was beautiful, and you could feel refreshed by that. And you can feel a little bit better for a while. But it will come rushing back, and it will bury you. But what about this? What if you went to the word of God and as you were feeling tremendous stress over the circumstances that you're facing, maybe right now, maybe this week, you heard these words from Isaiah 40, verse 11. He, meaning God, tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. And for those of you who have children, he gently leads those who have young. Or maybe you could hear the words of Psalm 34, verses 4 through 7. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. You see, it's in the word of God that you discover that God loves you, and that he is tender toward you, and that he cares for you. And that revives you, that restores you, that refreshes you. That's the controlling theme. That's what the word of God does that nature could never do. The, the revelation of God in nature can't compare to the revelation of God in the word. Now, what are the ways that it revives us? Well, there's a few that I'd like us to, to look at very quickly uh, as we uh, go through this psalm. First of all, look at verse 7b. It says, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. God's word is trustworthy. You can trust it, meaning you can base your life upon it. And when you listen to it, it says, when you do what it says, you become wise. If you look down at verse 11, it says, by them, by the word of God, by the statutes of God, your servant is warned in keeping them, there is great reward. Here's the problem with us. We think we're wise, but we aren't. We think we know, but we don't. And one of the things that this whole crisis is doing is it's really impressing that upon people in a, in a new way, in a profound way. You listen to those politicians and they're admitting they're not exactly sure what to do. They're, they're trying to be, show confidence and trying to say, here's what we need to do and, and chart a path forward, but they're unsure. They can't be certain. Um, I remember listening to something by, uh, by Tim Keller on the Proverbs, talking about the same theme, about how the Proverbs can make us who are simple, who are foolish, make us wise. And he, he described it this way. He said, think about what you were like 20 years ago. So when I 20 years ago, I was 25 years old. Now, think about who you were 20 years ago. Well, I was foolish. 
I thought I knew a lot of things, and I've discovered over the last 20 years that I don't know nearly as much as I thought I knew. Think of all the silly mistakes you made 20 years ago. Like, there's a lot. When you're young, you think you know, but you don't. There's a lot of people walking around with silly tattoos that they never wish they ever got, right? Um, and on a more serious level, there are a lot of people who had a certain criteria for the kind of person they wanted to date and the kind of person that they wanted to eventually marry who are looking back and saying that criteria made mis was, was terrible. Anybody who lives over, who, who's over the, the age of 30, they have things in their lives where they say, I should have listened. You should have listened to the word of God. In keeping them, there is great reward. You know how much pain and suffering we could, we could avoid if we would just listen to the word of God. Look through the Proverbs. My son, my son, my son, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. It's almost begging. Okay, that's one way it revives us. It makes simple, it makes wise the simple. What else? Um, in verse eight, the first half of verse eight, it says this. It says, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Now, what does it mean by right? Derek Kidner, who's an Old Testament scholar, uh, he says that this word right here, it means morally pure or straight. In other words, God's word is like a ruler. And it's connected to, to what I was just talking about, making, making wise the simple. How should you live? What makes a good life? What is life all about? How do you know the difference between what is right and what is wrong? I know in our culture, it is normal for people to say, well, you gotta figure it out yourself. You do you. You decide for yourself. All that does is create a tremendous amount of anxiety for all of us who are trying to figure it out. And especially what you discover as you get older is you're like, you know, um, here's what I want. And this is what I want to do. And then you discover later, oh, that was not the right thing to do. That was the wrong thing to, get, to do. I thought it was okay. I know it was contrary to the Bible, but I thought I understood what I needed and what was right for me. I had to follow myself. I had to, to chart my own path. I had to be true to myself and, and uh, be honest about what I wanted. And I've discovered that it's led to disaster in my life. We need a straight edge. We need something to put our desires up against to test them. Listen, what the culture says is right and wrong is always changing. Sometimes it's changing for the better. The abolition of slavery, a very good thing. Sometimes it's changing for the worst. Assisted suicide. People are arguing that that's a good thing for society. But it's contrary to the Bible. The Bible, you see, is unchanging. In verse 9, it says, the decrees of the Lord are firm. They're not shifting. They're not changing. You can bank on them. They are a solid foundation that you can build your life upon because it is God's word. But there's even more. There's even more. The Bible, when it acts as a straight edge in your life, it also helps you deal with your guilt. 
people walk around with a lot of guilt. As a pastor, that's one thing I know. And people who are in the counseling profession, they'll tell you too. People carry a tremendous amount of guilt. But here's the question. How do you discern between false guilt and true guilt? Sometimes we should be guilty, but sometimes we're guilty when, when we shouldn't be guilty. And the answer is you take it to Scripture. You take it to the Bible. If you test your guilt against the Bible and the Bible says that is false guilt, you have no reason to feel guilty about that, you can chuck it, you can toss it. But if the Bible comes along and says, no, that is true guilt, you, can, you, you, you ought to be guilty about that, it can be dealt with so that it can be removed. And that gives joy to the heart. Listen, knowing what is right and what is wrong, knowing what is up and what is down, waking up every day, knowing what God wants from you, it is a profound blessing. You know, my parents, when, when Jess and I were starting to have kids, my parents said over and over and over to us, you know, the thing that your kids need more than anything else is they need consistency. The worst thing for your kids is confusion. The worst thing is your kids not knowing what the rules are, what the parameters are, how, how things work in this household. They will always be walking on edge cells or always banging up against the rules and getting into trouble and becoming angry and bitter. They, they, they really pressed down upon us how important it was to maintain a consistent foundation of what the expectations were. And that's tremendously freeing. And because scripture is a completely unsullied, unblemished source of truth, it is a solid foundation that you can bank on. Okay, um, I, I got like, I got at least two more, but I'm, I'm not, I'm, we're gonna move to the last one um, about how it revives the heart. And it's, it's, in some ways, it's kind of the most important one, so I saved it for last. <laughs> uh, and it's a surprising way. If you look at verses 12 through 14, what's really interesting is that David, all of a sudden, he shifts gears. So he, at first, was talking about nature and God revealing himself in nature and how majestic he is. Then he goes to God revealing himself in the word and how it shows us how wonderful he is and how he can revive us through his word. And then, and then all of a sudden, he starts talking not about the Bible, but about himself. He says, Verse 13, or verse 12 and 13, who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins that they may not rule over us. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Why does he make this shift? Well, he makes this shift because David sees that when you listen to the word of God, when you read the word of God, the word of God reads you. Because when you, are, when, you, when you study God's word or listen to God's word, you are being confronted with God himself. Think about this. Look at verse 7. Take out the, the, the phrases like the law of the Lord or the statutes of the Lord and just have the Lord. The Lord is perfect. The Lord is trustworthy. The Lord is right. The Lord is radiant. Uh, verse 9 now, the Lord is firm. You see, God's word is a revelation of God himself. 
And when you see that, that God is showing you something of himself in his word, what happens is, is you, you also start to see something of yourself in the word. And it reveals, as, as David says, that, that we have hidden faults, that it reveals our secret rebellion against him. It starts to show us who we are, that we are not people who keep this word. We are not people who delight in this word. We are not people who see uh, God's word as sweeter than honey. Most of the time, we feel like God's word is some kind of burden that's being laid upon us. But you see, God has to do that at first. There's a place in Pilgrim's Progress, which is a great book, where Pilgrim meets a guy named Worldly Wiseman. And Pilgrim is carrying this this burden on his back. And Worldly Wiseman sees the burden and he says, where did you get the burden? And Pilgrim actually holds out a book and he says, I got it from the book in my hand and it's the Bible. See, understand, when you start reading the word of God, like really reading it as the word of God, as though it has some kind of authority over your life, as though he is the one who speaks to you, not you, you giving your sort of impressions of what he's like, he begins to lay a burden on you, the burden of your sin. And that would crush you, except that it doesn't stop there. This is the amazing thing. It goes on to cleanse because it doesn't just show law what you should do, but it shows you grace. Look at verse 14. How remarkable is this? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. See, what David saw vaguely by the power of the Holy Spirit was true. He needed a redeemer, but God was the redeemer. The very one who gave him the way how to live, even though he was unable to live it, was the one who was going to redeem him to enable him to live it. Can you believe that? Well, if you live on the other side of Calvary, you can. Because what David saw vaguely, though truly, you and I see clearly. John 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then it goes on to say, the word became flesh. Jesus Christ is the word in the flesh. He is word incarnate. He came to live Psalm 19. And he truly delighted in the words of God. The words of his mouth, the meditations of his heart were always pleasing to the Lord all the time. Never once did he sin. Never once did he turn his back on God's word. Never once did he violate God's commands. Never once. And this word we read in the New Testament that, that he went to the cross for people like you and me who don't follow the word of God, who don't trust the word of God, who don't listen to the word of God, who don't delight in the word of God. He went to the cross and he died for you and for me so that our sins, our secret sins, our hidden rebellions could all be washed away and be forgiven. And it's through that lens, you see, that Seeing the word of God as accomplishing our salvation through Jesus Christ, who is the word in the flesh, then you can be revived. Then you can be restored. Then you can be refreshed. Then, as verse 10 says, God's word becomes precious 
to you, more precious than gold, more precious than your life, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, because it shows you your Savior. There's a series of books by a guy named C.S. Lewis um, called the Narnia Chronicles. And in one of the books, called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a character named Eustace. Now, Eustace is a brat. He's a very unlikable boy. And it's okay if, kids, if you've read this book or if your parents have read it to you and you're like, I don't like that useless. <laughs> hey, I wonder if that's why he was called Eustace, because it sounds like useless. I digress. Anyhow. If you don't like Eustace, it's okay. You're not supposed to like Eustace. And he becomes so unlikable that he actually turns into a dragon. And at one point, this dragon Eustace, he meets Aslan. Now, Aslan is meant to represent Jesus. And Aslan asks him, do you like being a dragon? Well, I know I hate it. I don't want to be a dragon anymore. And there's a pool, they're standing by a pool, and, and Eustace understands that if he can get in that pool, uh, he, he could be cleansed, and he doesn't have to be this awful beast anymore. And Aslan says to him, well, here's the problem. Um, you actually have to take off your skin uh, before you can get into the pool. And Eustace says, oh, okay, I'll do that. So he takes his claw, and he tears his skin, and it falls off, and, and once he's out of it, he realizes that he's still a dragon, and he's still in his skin. And so he tries it again and tries it again and tries it again and, and he just keeps ending up a dragon over and over. And finally, uh, um, Aslan has, tells him, look, in order for this to work, you have to let me undress you. And so Eustace, who's very terrified of the lion, finally gives in and says, okay, you can do it. And Lewis describes it beautifully how the lion's great claws just tore into Eustace's skin. And he screams out in pain. But once it's all off him, it doesn't come back. And the lion picks him up and he doesn't just like let him stick his big toe in the pool. He throws him into the pool. And this is what Lewis says. He says, it smarted and then it tasted delicious. That's how it works. God's word, as he reads us, as we listen to it, as we submit to it, it smarts. Because it reveals to us our sin, but then, friends, it shows us our forgiveness, and it tastes delicious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to love your word. In your word, you show us your holiness, our sin. More and more, in ever greater depth, but at the same time, you also show us, you also show us your grace. And the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger in our life. Father, use that to transform us, to make us people who love our neighbor, to make us people who are kind to others, to make us people who are bold in our evangelism, to make us like our Savior. In his name we pray.